Welcome back to the program, except perhaps for brief periods of historical time. There have always been divides in America and in the world. Sometimes it's been about race or about ethnicity, sometimes about gender or status. Today, that divide is fueled by education, class, and economic attainment. Is it any surprise, then, that we have completely shuffled the deck on success and that modern marketing and media simply reinforces those images? Those with means, with college and postgraduate education, have similar goals, similar objectives, and similar lifestyles. It matters far less what gender or what race. What matters is education and attainment and class. That, coupled with the longstanding idea of associative mating, has grown and reinforced an economic elite where its members share far more with each other than with others of a similar race or a similar gender. Sisterhood and brotherhood have given rise to what David Brooks might call bobohood. How this has impacted women and society in general is the subject of a new book by my guest, Alison Wolf. Alison Wolf is a professor of public sector management at King's College London and the author of a new book entitled The XX Factor, How the Rise of Working Women Has Created a Far Less Equal World. Alison Wolf, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me to. Great to have you here. One of the, the primary ideas that really you put forth in the XX Factor is this idea that at least for women, there no longer is a universal with respect to gender that women can deal with. Talk about that. I think this is a really profound change. Historically, the most important thing about your life, if you were a woman, was that you were a woman. And whether you were rich or poor clearly mattered. It was more comfortable to be married to a rich man than to be married to a poor man. Really and truly, what determined your life was making a good marriage and having children. And that applied across the globe. It applied millennium on millennium. It was just as terrifying for the child of a comfortable middle-class family, for the daughter of a comfortable middle-class family, to face the idea that she might not marry, as it was for somebody in a mill town or a mining village. That was your life. Your life was about being a wife, being a mother. And if you didn't achieve that, the options that you had open to you were unbelievably limited and pretty scary. And today that is simply not the case. And the result of that is that the the options, the lifestyles, the possibilities that are opening up for educated women all around the globe are completely different from those that are offered to the vast bulk of women. But it means that although women still often like to think of themselves as having lots in common and common causes and like to think of feminism as something that's about all women. The reality is that if you are highly educated, you are very privileged, you have far more in common with the men who shared your college classes than you do with other women. And this is, this is a global revolution. What is the link between this change that you see with respect to women and the overall shrinking of the middle class in general? I think it's very related to, to the changes. You know, clearly, once women were given the freedom to become educated, that in itself was going to change the world. But, but it's happened, and, and perhaps not coincidentally, it's happened at a time when, as you've said, our world is changing. We've got this, this really quite frightening drawing away at the top, and it's... it's 
it's not just the 1%, it's the 10 to 15%, along with this shrinking in the middle. And what has happened is that at the top, you've got a group of very well-educated, usually two-income, two-career, two-profession families who are also quite determined to do everything they can to promote the interests and safety and security of their own children. And so, you know, even while they may wring their hands about what is happening, their existence makes it even harder to, to see how you're going to change this, this, this concentration of privilege and wealth at the very top. One of the other things that contributes to this, and you spend a lot of time talking about it, is this idea of assortive or associative mating that people in this category, the 50-plus percent of women that, that are graduating from colleges today, that are becoming doctors and lawyers, etc., that they're much more interested in marrying men that are just like they are and vice versa. And especially vice versa, I would say. This is, I think, one of the really interesting things because, you know, when you look at the world today and you realize that more than half of the, the freshmen in Ivy League colleges are, are, are women, that it's, it's, you know, it's actually tipped, you, you sometimes think, well, you know, why did the men let them get away with it? You know, what, <laughs> what, what was in it was for the men. And the interesting thing is that one of the thing that's, things that's been in it for the men is that they want... They want alpha mothers for their children, and they want alpha women as their mates. And it, it was fascinating to me to discover that when Harvard and Yale and Princeton went co-ed, they did so because they were losing the brightest men. The brightest men wanted to go to colleges where they were going to meet women like themselves. And absolutely, today there is... There is very, very, very little evidence of there being any significant number of men who want to marry a series of brainless trophy wives. I mean, you, you see a few in the, in the magazines, but when you actually look at the statistics, this is a tiny minority. Men want to marry women like themselves, and women want to marry men like themselves, and it's the same dynamic. They want alpha mates, and they want alpha fathers for their children. What do we see then in the relationship between women within this group, within the sisterhood of those that are part of this 15-20%? That's again an interesting question. Some people believe that women are nicer and look out for each other more. And some people believe the opposite, that we're a load of queen bees who don't want anybody <laughs> anywhere near us. I would say actually one of the things that's quite interesting is that as more and more women enter the workplace and as more and more women have careers that are very similar to men's, we're also realizing that although there are profound differences and physical differences and in some cases taste differences, actually women are just as diverse as men and how a female boss behaves to you has a lot more to do with her personal character than it has to do with her being female. And I think that Really and truly, there's pretty little evidence that women in a significant way look out for other women more than they do for other men, and also very little evidence that they don't look out for men. I mean, fortunately, as people, men and women get older, they do tend to want to mentor younger people, but it gets more and more gender blind, like everything else at the top. One of the things that you also talk about, and, and it relates to this issue of gender relationships, 
is the strength of relationships within families and how they are much stronger and much more intense, particularly as it relates to parenting, when you get to this group. That's, again, I think, a very interesting development. And one of the things that I do indeed write quite a lot about and became very aware of is what here in the UK we've taken to calling super parenting. I don't know whether you do the same thing, but um, super parenting is a very, very recent phenomenon in many ways. And I think relates to the fact that people at the top look at this world, they look at the shrinking incomes of the middle class, they look at globalization, they're kind of scared for their kids. And one of the ways in which they respond is by giving enormous amounts of attention to their kids. Although parents, both men and women, are working longer hours in professional jobs than pretty much anybody else in the labor force, they're also giving unprecedented and amounts of time to their, to their children, and, and much more than anybody else's. And this, I think, is, is very evident. And the other thing which is absolutely true is there's been this tendency, I think, to to discount the family. There was all that kind of rubbish about friends of the new family. And again, all I can say is when you look at it, it's not obvious. The families of the top 15, 20% are less likely to divorce. They're strong. They're, they have clear ties. They remain in many ways quite close to their parents and their parents are a strong source of financial support, you know, particularly when you're trying to buy a house in the current market. And all of this, again, is, is very evident. And I think we've been a little bit blind to just how powerful a force in, in human society the family remains. And even in the United States, family businesses are still hugely important. And again, when you look at the at this and you compare it to what happens at the other end of, of the, the financial scale, again, you've got a, a group who are not only struggling financially, but often have very little in the way of close family ties. They will have often a very strong tie with a mother, but, but not much else. And this, you know, this further disadvantages people. And it's not that, it's not about whether or not you love your child, it's about the social forces and whether they make it easy for you to maintain these strong family ties and whether or not you actually have the, the knowledge of the world that makes you really determined to get the best for your kid and know the way to do it. The other factor that, of course, changes the dynamic in so many ways is that one of the things that makes this super parenting possible, the success of these families in this 15, 20% possible, is the affordability of the labor class. Yes. And, and this is, again, something where, you know, in 100 years, who knows, maybe we'll finally have invented robots. <laughs> but clearly, the other thing that has happened is that our modern lifestyles are tied in with the return of the servant classes. And one of the other things that, again, I became very aware of when I was writing the book and what something I talk about in the book is that in the strange way, the 1950s and the 1960s, which bred militant feminism, but they were also a strange anomaly in the lives of the, of the well-to-do because they were the period when upper middle class and, and comfortably off middle class women did their own housework and did their own childcare. And these days they don't. And the thing that you can see making our current lifestyles possible is that 
our world depends for good and bad and, and, and across societies on the availability of a large workforce, overwhelmingly female, that looks after other people's children, looks after other people's houses, looks after other people's parents. And many of these are very ambitious and determined women who are, for example, working in California in order to send school fees home to the Philippines. But that is what it depends on. It depends on this worldwide movement of people working in other people's homes. And that, again, is something which, if you had described this to somebody in a 1955 Midwestern suburb, would have sounded like something from the moon. Where is the inflection point? Have you looked for that? Have you found that from this period in the 1950s and 1960s, which, as you say, bred this kind of militant feminism, but there was less class division. Gender divisions and and other social divisions were much more prominent than these educational and class divisions we're talking about today. Is it worth noting when that tipping point came and what can it tell us? It's certainly worth noting when it came because it it's very clear when it comes. It comes at the beginning of the 1970s. That's the point at which the, the, the top schools go co-ed. The, around the world, you start getting laws passed which make it both legally impossible and, I would say, socially unacceptable to discriminate overtly on the basis of gender. You get a another big increase in the number of people going through college and a very, very clear demarcation of top colleges. That starts to emerge. And that's the point also at which women start really colonizing the university space. I mean, that's the point at which you move from a university world in which if there are women, they're almost certainly starting to become teachers to a world in which in faculty after faculty, the student body becomes more and more male. And, you know, finally this year, I think it, um, Berkeley announced that some of its um, freshman and sophomore computing courses had actually got a majority of women in them too. So that's, that's the point. And then you can see this, this, this flood tide and that's what changes it. And, it. and it is about changing social attitudes. I think facts and attitudes feed into each other. But there is this very, very clear inflection point, And that's the point also at which it becomes more and more a question of your education, how, how you do in life. That up until then, education helped. Now, education determines more and more. And that's also kind of scary because then it starts to be about what school you get into when you're 17 or 18. The other aspect of this is that this isn't just a U.S. or U.S. and U.K. phenomenon. This is a worldwide phenomenon, and even in places like China, it's further along than it is in the West. It's definitely further on outside the West than it was at comparable levels of, of, of income. In fact, if you look at... China, India, Thailand today, and you look at the US or the UK or France or Germany when they had those levels of income, what is really striking is how well women are doing and how much people in developing countries take it for granted that, that, that women should be in the workplace, in the seminar room, at the top front of the class lecturing, becoming a billionaire property developer. Women are doing just way better in the developing world than women in the West did 
at times when we were at their level of income or indeed considerably beyond it. And, and I think this is two things. I think it's partly the nature of the modern economy because, of course, developing countries today are working in a global economy where what they're trading, what they're buying, what they're selling is very different from what the US or France or the UK was doing in, in 1900. But I do also think that it's, it's changing attitudes, that in this sense it's just not acceptable and it doesn't occur to people to look at women and treat women in the way that, that a few generations back people did in the West. Um, it's the 50th anniversary this year of a, an extraordinary chemist called Dorothy Hodgkin, who was also Margaret Thatcher's tutor, um, teacher at, at Oxford, and she won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. And I've just seen some of pictures of some of the newspaper headlines at the time that she won her Nobel Prize. This is 50 years ago, um, before the tipping point. And it says, Oxford housewife and mother wins Nobel Prize. <laughs> and you go... I'm sorry. And it's, you suddenly feel that the past is a different country. How today would it occur to any respectable newspaper anywhere in the world to report on the winning of a Nobel Prize in terms of wife and mother wins Nobel Prize? You just, you wouldn't do it. What impact is this having as it filters down to even younger women, to millennials today, to girls in high school today, that are looking at this picture and having to make decisions based on it? I think that it would be good if they knew more of the numbers and more of the facts, which is one reason, obviously, why I hope people will read the book. But I think it is having an impact, but I think it also makes them anxious. What I find when I talk to women between 18, 19, and, and, and 25 who are highly educated is that they feel very anxious about how they can or will manage their, their family lives, their personal lives. Many of them actually seem to think that men don't like educated women, which is on the, you know, on the evidence utterly untrue. They are sometimes unrealistic and sometimes, I think, over-pessimistic about what they can achieve. I think that for people in the middle... It's tough. I think that most people realize now that, that education really matters. But the trouble is that it is, it's a kind of, it's not exactly a zero-sum game. I would never say that. I, I actually think education is wonderful, even if it doesn't help you get a great job. But I think that what it has done, quite rightly, unfortunately, to, to, to girls particularly, I think maybe the men will start recognizing this more more in the near future but but when you talk to young women of 15 16 17 they feel under intense pressure absolutely intense pressure they feel that if they get into the right college the right school the world is indeed their oyster and that if it if they don't then it's kind of all over and that has some realism i think it's overstated it's also it's it's a little depressing and one would wish it was otherwise, but short of inventing those robots, I don't quite know how to change the world economy. The other impact that it has had is it has severely limited, as in few other historical times, any kind of social mobility. It certainly has. I'm not sure that we should say any historical times. We had a period of amazing social mobility, 
through a large chunk of the 20th century that was to do with the extraordinary growth and the change in the nature of the jobs that were available. And, and that's now the growth is flattening out and the types of jobs are it's actually going a bit into reverse. I think, I, you know, we still live in a pretty amazing world compared to that of most of human history, I would say. But there is no question that it has had that effect. I think that it, the, in, this, in this way, the, the arrival of ambitious, connected, well-off, well-paid women alongside ambitious, connected, well-off, well-paid men has certainly created barriers to coming through later in life from an ordinary background that did not exist in the 1920s or the 1950s. And the fact that this is happening in a world where globally it's so competitive makes it even worse. So I, I, I do think that's the case. It's, it's also why I get so... I, I do get angry when the major complaint of many women, and I think perhaps this is stronger in Europe than it is in, in, in the US, but we have this huge campaign here at the moment for, for mandating a limited, uh, a, a sort of a percentage of women on, on company boards, so that if you're a big company, there's this idea that you should pass a Europe-wide law which says at least 30% of the, of, the, of the directors should be women. And it's, this seems to me to so utterly miss the point about the real challenges facing our world that, that, that it slightly takes my breath away. The idea that putting a, a Harvard or Oxford educated lawyer or MBA on a board rather than a Harvard or Oxford educated man with an MBA, the, the idea that this is, this is one of the major requirements for social justice in our world just seems to me to be, I guess, an example of how our elites, like all other elites, are very good at believing that, you know, what is good for the elite is good for the country. If you go back and talk to the feminist leaders of the 60s and 70s, and they see the world that has been wrought in some manner as a result of their efforts. How did they view it? I wish I could say that they see the, the cloud in the silver lining. Uh, my, my own feeling is that many of the, of the, the leaders from the, 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 the glory days are sort of stuck in a mindset which says, you know, women are victims, men are oppressors, what is good for one woman is good for all women. And uh, the main, one of the major points of my book is to argue that while that may have been true once, it certainly isn't true today. But I do think that many younger women who are interested in the condition of woman, women do see this as as perhaps a classic human dilemma. You, you win one battle and you realize that that, that doesn't unfortunately sort all the evils of the world and that the, the, the real challenge to me for the next couple of generations is about that middle, male and female, I think, because I, it worries me enormously the decline in social mobility, the, 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 the fact that we don't seem to have a clue how to stop this concentration of wealth at the top. These seem to me to be the major social challenges that we have because in, in a democracy that actually believes truly in equal, in equal opportunity and that also believes genuinely that people should have a chance to use their talents, you know, clearly not everybody can be at the top, but we... 
we surely ought to be able to do a better job than we have been doing in the last 20 years. In many ways, race has become a similar kind of issue. It has divided up also more along class lines and success lines than simply ethnicity and race. I think this is somewhere where anybody in the U.S. has a very different experience from that of most of us in Europe because you have had, for historic reasons, enormous race inequalities that have been with you for as long as you've been a nation state and that are very clearly race related but it's certainly my impression and certainly and this is where i do get reluctant to to tell americans how their country (laughs) is going but i actually this is absolutely my impression that 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 time and again what you're finding is that once you get in once you get through that education hurdle and once you get once you start looking at the sort of top 20 30 percent of society Yes, I mean it's it's it it's about it's about class, it's about education, it's not about race. You you do of course have some real real problems in particularly in some of the the eastern midwestern cities in the south which I think are a historical legacy that you guys will be struggling with for a, a lot longer. But certainly interestingly one of the things that's become very evident in in Western, in Western European countries where we've had very large amount of immigration, but it's been lots of different groups. So we've got hugely much more ethnic variety than we did 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. And one of the things that's very interesting is that absolutely, the ra- the different racial groups do differentially, but certainly in my own country, every single one of them does better than the the old white working class that has got stuck in areas where industries have died. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, what you would expect. These are ambitious immigrant groups, and they do vary in how well their home culture prepares them for the West. But, but they're, 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 in every single one of them, the, one, if the kids get through, if they win their way through, if they get to a good university, after that, what the statistics tell us is that from then on, the race is irrelevant. To what extent is ageism finally playing a role for women today? I think ageism does play a role. I think it will go on playing a role because I think that as human beings, we respond completely subconsciously in a hardwired way to whether we see people as fit, energetic, not necessarily sexy in an obvious way, but 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 clearly sort of full-blown, potentially sexual human beings with strength and potential and life still in them. And I think that's that's a reality. And I think it's more of a reality for women because of the way that both men and women subconsciously respond to women's appearances as compared to to men. So I think at one and the same time, what we have is a society in which we are going to all go on living longer and working longer, and that will also have some very interesting implications. But I certainly would say to any middle-aged woman, yes, spend the money on your appearance if you want to do well, because actually how people see you is going to matter. So yes, dress well. Yes, dye your hair. Yes, use makeup. Yes, wear heels. All of these things are sending signals out 
which whether or not you approve of them and whether or not other people believe they respond to them or not, they do respond to them. And at the end of the day, that may be the biggest commonality. I think it is the biggest commonality, but it's also, unfortunately, yet another of these places where money pays. Um, you want to look really good when you're 55. Um, do you know what a decent hairdresser costs? <laughs> <laughs> Alison Wolf. Her book is The XX Factor, How the Rise of Working Women Has Created a Far Less Equal World. Allison, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed it enormously, and thank you for asking me some really excellent questions. Thank you. Allison Wolf, The XX Factor. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.